1: The market gets spooked by whispers of an increase in the capital gains tax rate. Plus, as the economy reopens, what will a new normal look like? For all this and more, I'm joined by Real Vision managing editor Ed Harrison. Ed, welcome back to the Daily Briefing. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, Jack. Uh, Second time in a week for you and me. I know. We should make a habit of it. Definitely. Um, Ed, so. It's
1: we're filming at 4:06 p.m. right now. The markets just closed. I guess the story of the day, if we had to choose, would probably be the rumors of tax hikes, specifically on those capital gains. Could you break down um, what the news was and just explain what a uh, long-term capital gains tax is?
2: Yeah, sure. So the. News is, or there's a rumor that the Biden administration wants to raise capital gains tax and specifically long term capital gains. You know, there are two types of capital gains. You could hold a, a financial instrument for a short period of time. And if you bought it and then sold it under that uh, regime, you would have to pay short term capital gains tax. But if you bought it and then sold it over a longer period of time, which would be considered an investment a long time then you would pay long term capital gains tax and what they're trying to do is raise the capital gains tax this is the rumor to the same level as the highest marginal tax rate for individual personal income which is 39.6% and so that would be a doubling of the tax rate from 20% where it is now to 39.6% so
1: that would, you'd literally double the amount that you'd have to pay if you've been holding an S&P 500 index for five years and you want to sell that. When you realize those gains, your taxes, it's literally doubling it, if this person is of the highest income bracket, of course.
2: Right, exactly. So the, So what it says is it takes away the advantage that people who are investing in long-term instruments in the market have over normal, ordinary wage earners. So, If you and your spouse are earning your wages, uh, and that's how you make your money, and you pay a top marginal rate of 39.6%, you will be now paying the same rate as if you were making your money through capital gains.
1: Yeah. Needless to say, the market did not like this at all. Up until about noon, the market was Chugging along pretty steadily, at, uh, up for the day. But at 1 p.m. when this rumor dropped, uh, the S&P plummeted over the next hour. And actually, I you know I ran the numbers, Ed. And if you look at the 10-minute rate of change, that's how much things go up or down during 10 minutes. Um, we actually set a monthly record, the S&P 500, in terms of going down. It went down almost 4, 4, excuse me, went down almost .4 percent. Um, And that is the most, uh, the biggest ten-minute rate of change since March of uh, mid-March. So, you know, needless to say, the the market did not like it.
2: Yes, and we can take a very neutral stance on it if we want, just because this is a political issue in many ways. But I think this is a core issue. And I was thinking about this actually, Jack, before we got on, and I said to myself that you know, working and middle-class people, they're sick and tired of this game that's being played where people say, you know what, Uh, if you invest over the long term, that's better for society. It's going to be good for growth and capital uh, appreciation and capital formation, and we need to uh, advantage those things. Uh, So we're going to give these people uh, a a, a leg up because it's going to be good for the economy. Wage earners are sick and tired of that argument because of income inequality. It's total bullshit. Okay let me just come out and say it, that it's it's a fallacious argument. Yes, certainly some people probably believe it, but the large majority of people probably think that it's just a, a way for a higher income people to be able to get over on the system, to basically steal uh, from the system to, to get a leg up versus everyone else. And I tend to see it that way as well myself, and and this is what causes populism, is, is the sense that we're living in a world of income inequality, and someone who's making millions and millions of dollars is paying 20%, and someone who's not making millions of dollars, who's making maybe $100,000, they're paying double that rate. How is that fair, Jack?
1: It's not. And Ed, I think the markets have thrived during that inequality that you say, and yeah, looking at the vix today, I think that if the market is pricing in that this actually happens and the uh they don't like it one bit,
2: yeah, you know uh, as I said, we can take a neutral stance on the whole thing, but really, this is at the this is at the heart of uh, our capitalist system. If people think the system's rigged and if you're paying twenty percent and I'm paying thirty nine point six percent, I would argue it is rigged, then uh, they're not going to buy into that system.
1: Absolutely, Um, Ed. So I think that we covered that story of the day, which is uh, you know really going out over the headlines today. Um, But I, you have a longer term view that uh, I was reading your piece today on the virus. Uh, You you write that we are winning the foot race uh, very slowly against COVID nineteen. How can can you describe that?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't even say slowly. We're definitely. I'm saying that we're winning. Uh, we're in the process of winning the foot risk, particularly in the UK, Israel, and the US, the large economies that have vaccinated the most. Uh, If you look at the new reported cases, uh, as compiled by Johns Hopkins on, say, the New York Times uh, news site, what you would see is is you would see that uh, the cases are flat to almost even down, slightly down, minus 4%, 14-day change. So fewer cases now than there were 14 uh, days ago even though we're in the middle of a so-called fourth wave that is a wave that's uh, spread by the mutant virus that the, the B117 virus which was found in the variant found in the UK you go to places like Michigan as an example. Uh, uh, there's a huge outbreak there. Uh, increasing hospitalization, etc. But they're just pockets of these kinds of outbreaks in this fourth wave. There's no generalized uh, massive wave. And I think that we're far enough along in terms of the vaccination route in the U.S. with the majority of the population vaccinated, 200 million uh, doses already given out in the United States. That's you know two-thirds of the population, if you take it in, in that term. Uh, we're far enough along that we can say likely this fourth wave is not going to be like the other waves. It's not going to be a crescendo of case counts. Uh, We have won the foot race. The vaccination effort is going to go full steam ahead, and then we're going to have the full reopening.
1: Ed, there's a chart that you took from the FT which is on age cohorts within the UK and how as they get more vaccinated, uh, their share of cases has fallen. Can you speak to uh, just the efficacy of these vaccines that has been proven? And moreover, the tailwind effect of as people know that and they hear that and they see that, they get more confident and they get get more confident going out. They're not staying locked in their their houses all day. And that stimulates economic activity.
2: Yeah. So uh, in the UK, what they've done is they've said, we'll give you one shot uh, and then we'll take a long time to get the second shot. And so uh, a lot of people haven't been fully vaccinated. They've only been partially vaccinated uh, in prioritization by age. And so if you look at the cohorts that are the oldest, those are the ones that have had the most uh, first shots and then most second shots Uh, And then you can go down the line. When you look at the 90 to 100-year-old people in the UK, uh, it's fallen by almost 80%, uh, that cohort, the number of cases. If you look at 80 to 90, it's fallen by 50%. uh, And then on up the line, until you get to the 50 to 60% cohort, where it's fallen by 20%, that's the most recent cohort to get uh, one shot and then potentially a second shot. So what it shows you is the protection that you're getting from the vaccine. And the interesting bit, of course, obviously, if we think back that uh, in the first and second waves, it was the oldest people who were getting the most severe symptoms. So they're also not getting severe symptoms. So no hospital overload. All of that combined tells you that uh, what we're seeing now is a situation where the end of the tunnel is there, You can we're we're probably close to a new normal, and I think that by the summer, places like the UK, Israel, United States will be there, and many other countries will follow soon thereafter, including uh, countries in the EU.
1: Ed, you mentioned the new normal. That's a phrase that we've used for some time now. You say that the next we are in the fourth wave, and it's not going to be economically destabilizing. As we reopen, what does the new normal mean for industries, for the different sectors, for how people consume, how people produce? Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, you know, the way that I would uh, look at it is through the lens of, the, of Canada, uh, because I think they, they offer a good uh, understanding of how this works. So the Canadians, you know they didn't do a full lockdown or or, or rather um, they, they didn't keep people out and cl- shut down their borders the way that the Australians and the New Zealanders did and so as a result uh, there's been the opportunity for new variants to be imported from outside what we saw is is that the B117 variant's been por- uh, imported into Canada uh, and they' they're now going through a lockdown. Uh, friends of mine who live in Toronto, they're basically in a lockdown right now, and they haven't vaccinated very quickly, so they're in a difficult situation. While this is ongoing, literally right now we're starting to get cases of uh, i think it's called the the b one six one seven variant, which is an Indian variant. People think that this particular variant Is responsible for the massive increase in the number of cases in India, and there are flights to and from India every single day into Canada. In BC, they've caught you know you know dozens of these cases of this particular variant. So we know for a fact that this variant, which is potentially one of these variants of concern that people talk about, it's gonna it's gonna populate around, and this is a variant that's come out. Uh, as it's another mutation, has double mutations on the spike protein that allows it to potentially evade uh, antibodies. The long and short is 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 that what's happening in Canada is a perfect example of why we should think of the virus as endemic. That is, is is that there's always going to be some country, some place where, It's not fully locked down, and there are variants that are being created all the time that are able to evade antibodies and, therefore, making this a virus that we're not going to eliminate 100%. And if that's the case, you have to say that the lifestyle that we've been living for the last year, some facsimile of that is going to survive into the new normal. So the new normal is not going to be like the old normal. Uh, you know, if there's any lingering fear whatsoever that you could go to a ball game, that you could go to a restaurant, that you could get onto an airplane, and that you could get sick and die, uh, then at the margin, there are going to be people who are going to act differently, and that means that we're going to see some economic fallout as a result. So that's how I would posit it. You know, I would use that uh, that. A circumstance that we see right now. That's exactly what's going on right now as we speak.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
1: Yeah, break that down for me, Ed. What are the different fault lines of the new normal? You know, are, are people going to be working from home forever on Zoom? Uh, excuse me, on Zoom, on Clubhouse during their night rather than hanging out with their friends, or are we all going to be going back to the office? Should people invest in commercial real estate? You know, or so, somewhere in between a hybrid model? Break down what the different fault lines are for the reopening.
2: Yeah, so I would say that uh, the most discretionary, uh, close contact activities that you're doing, at the margin, and we don't know what that that margin is, uh, people are going to act differently there. So uh, let's say, for instance, uh, in the old normal, I would have gone to a restaurant uh, three times a month uh, with my family. Maybe uh, in the new normal, I'll go to a restaurant uh, three times a month. But maybe the people down the street who used to go three times a month, they're only going to go twice a month, and then they're going to take out for the other time, because that's what they've gotten used to doing, taking out now. And we all know that takeout isn't as profitable as uh, as dining in. And so as a result, potentially, that's going to have an economic impact. So all it takes is you know that marginal change, and it could have very uh, wide-ranging impacts. And I think that the impacts it's going to have are on those places where the public health risk is the greatest. Those are the, the industries that are going to be impacted. And so the question now is, how much of that's priced in? Uh, given where we are today, You know, with airline stocks uh, coming out with their earnings today, it, and, and some of them falling, uh, is it priced in that we're going to see that, that level of change?
1: Yeah, Ed, you mentioned the airlines. I, I definitely want to talk about that. I'm curious, how much do you do you at Harrison price in the? Uh, I don't want to say irresponsibility or irrationality, but a you know the some people they value their experiences. You know, their health is not their primary goal. They would say, I would rather hang out with my friends and go out. Because I'm so sick of being outside, and when you look at, you know, let's say spring break in Miami, or or the litany of scenes that we've seen across the country of people going back, just like the old normal, going to indoor bars and and not wearing masks, um, you know, how do you think that that will play out?
2: Yeah, well, uh, it was interesting that uh, Frank Luntz, who's a um, Republican-leaning, uh, he he's a a polar. Uh, he did a focus group with uh, uh, some Republicans, and the first thing th- that they found is 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 that uh, the resistance to being vaccinated is greater in that group than it was before. That you know, if you haven't been vaccinated, if you don't, don't want to be vaccinated, you're more uh, hardened in that stance than you were before. But interestingly, what they found is is those people, if there's going to be vaccine passports they're going to look for fake uh, uh, vaccine cards. You know, the, this whole concept that they're going to be fake vaccine cards, uh, that's going around. And, you know, one of the, the, the people in the forum, they said 1,000%, yes, uh, if there's a if there are fake vaccine cards and I can go and attend a New York Yankees game uh, because I need to have proof that I'm vaccinated and I don't want to be vaccinated, you know that's, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Now, to the degree that that's a public health risk, Uh, And as you said, uh, potentially, let's say, let's call this irresponsible, because maybe that person gets infected because they're not vaccinated. You do, again, you have the chance for variants to spread. Uh, It's not just about the ability to infect other people, but it's the ability for uh, mutations to occur, and therefore, uh, for the new normal to be one in which uh, COVID-19 is an endemic disease in the exact same way as influenza. So our hope has to be that you know, the more virulent it becomes, that, that is, the easier it is to contract, the less deadly it becomes. And eventually, it's not going to be a life or death situation, uh, but at least o- over the medium term, uh, we're going to see some changes, and I think at the margin, that's going to have some wide-ranging impacts, particularly on things like office buildings, uh, hotels, travel, and a leisure.
1: And because you talked about the uh, t- tax unfairness earlier, I, I believe that Frank Luntz isn't he the person who coined the phrase "death tax" for uh, it, inheritance it, it, tax?
2: Yeah, uh, I, I do not know that. Uh, someone will uh, will have to. Uh, We'll have to Google that. Uh, I, I, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah, with you. I, Somehow,
1: I, I think he was. It's a, a genius uh, coinage because I think the amount of people who actually would have to pay the inheritance tax is less than one percent. But by calling it a death tax, people are like people are taxing my death. You know, uh, <laughs> it, it makes them sound very outraged about it. Um, yeah, but Ed, you mentioned earlier the, the airline, so I'll just. Uh, yeah, pull up a, a few things that I noted about those um, earnings. So uh, American Airlines and Southwest reported their earnings today, and American actually uh, matched their expectations. They, had, uh, they were expected to lose $3.94 on an adjusted basis, um, and that's exactly what they did. Um, however, American Airlines was down 4.5%. Uh, so it just kind of shows uh, the market that we're in for those reopening stocks, where there really is no meets expectations. You either beat expectations and exceed them, but if you are at them, it's almost if you don't if you don't beat them, it's almost like you you miss them.
2: Right, you know, because it's like the game that we used to play in the late '90s—the whisper number. If you don't beat the whisper, I mean, you have your number, but if you don't beat the whisper number, then clearly uh, you're not doing well. The, you, there's there's something wrong with your your numbers. Every everyone knows you you can be, meet the uh, the normal hurdle, but there's another. There's the whisper hurdle that you're supposed to get over, and if you if you don't get over that, then there's something wrong. The, the interesting bit, you know, thinking about airlines is, um, you know, when I was talking about well, how things go, is the business traveler, you know, when we talk about at the margin. The question is, is when you break down the businesses for a lot of these companies, who is it that is going to be changing their behavior? Is it the high margin product that you're losing revenue on, or is it the lower margin product? In the ca- case of the airlines, it's going to be the higher margin product in particular, because I believe that uh, businesses have seen the benefits of cost savings. And they're the ones who have the money to engage in the technology that will replicate being able to go. So at the margin, those are the places where you'll see the, the greatest fall off in activity. And those are the highest margin Uh, customers for the airline. So that's a perfect example of how this can play out. And then the question, obviously, again, is, is that priced in? Um, The 4% down, maybe that shows you that it isn't priced in, that the whisper number was the number they were looking for to confirm that, okay, American Airlines is getting back to health. Absolutely. And I'm curious,
1: in your experience in the business world, what percentage of business trips need to actually be business trips you know what percentage of them are actually just you know you bring your golf clubs and you you fly to chicago and you shake someone's hand but it's kind of just like a a vacation but by some other name you know
2: yeah that's a good question i would say that um there is a i would say that 70 percent of business trips could be done um remotely i'll give you an example. I was a consultant 10 or 12 years ago, and my job was basically to, uh, to we, we had a bunch of clients who did a survey, and once they did the survey, we uh, took the data, crunched it, and then came up with some overarching themes that were consistent across different companies, across geographies, across company size, et cetera. And then we uh, created a narrative based upon those things. Uh, And the question is, is how do we then talk to you, you individual company, uh, to tell you about how this narrative fits you? And the answer was, I get on a, me, my job was get on a plane, go to that company, give them a presentation, whether it be to their executive team or to a larger group, you know, it, it varied between, you know, five people and... Four hundred people, and and then you know uh, I took questions, and then I went back to my hotel, and the next day I got on another plane and went and and left. So that's a meeting that in these days doesn't have to happen anymore, uh, and that's a huge amount of revenue that's being lost as a result. So I think that that's the sort of thing that people are talking about. We're not, you know, even if it's, as I said, 60, 70% uh, doesn't need to happen. What if of that 70%, 20% we don't do, but we do the other 50%? That's still a loss of 20% uh, of revenue. That's huge uh, in a business, especially when this is your high margin business.
1: Absolutely. Um, Ed, I, I just want to break down the other one, South. West Airlines. They expected to. They were expected to lose 1.10 in net income. They actually lost 1.01, so 8% better than expected. That was only down, I think, one and a half percent. And then also on earnings, Freeport-MacMurray, the the mining conglomerate that they mine uh, a lot of copper, which uh, is is a very big deal. So they uh, had 51 cents of earnings versus 49 cents expected, and. You know, copper is something that's on our radar because it's been at the vanguard of the commodity rally, and and as such, you know, it's been at the epicenter of the reflation trade. So, very interesting there.
2: Yeah. So I, my uh, general take is that it's just one day. Uh, you know, we can't read too much into numbers from uh, one day's business, but ultimately, I think we're getting closer to the proof is in the pudding. And very soon we'll be in a full reopened position. And that's when uh, all of the reflation trade uh, narrative has to come due. And if you don't live up to that, then there's gonna be a reckoning and your stock is gonna get pummeled. So we're, we're now very, very close. I would say by June, July, um, certainly we'll be there.
1: And Ed, what? because I'm thinking of your your interview with Gary Schilling, where you you had a conversation about exactly this. What industries do you think, excuse me, what industries other than airlines do you think are most vulnerable to this? buy the rumor, sell the news, where if you know the the earnings aren't extremely rosy and the inflation trade is just you know everyone everywhere is Miami. Um, and things are, oh, oh actually we're shutting down, we're doing this that 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 could have problems. What other, industries do you think are, are vulnerable to the inflation trade turning over?
2: I think that there are two sets of companies, honestly, that are um, uh, vulnerable. On the one side, you have the inflation trade companies that are in the uh, pandemic-affected sectors like uh, travel, like leisure, um, like hospitality, and people are expecting those things to come back. And, and you could say the same thing about a, a bunch of cyclical stocks as well. But on the other hand, what we saw with Netflix earlier in the week is is that there are other companies that are uh, potentially going to show negative numbers, and they also uh, have the potential to get hurt by what's happening here. Uh, let's remember that the the Fang stocks really multiple expansion the multiple expansion that we've seen in the Fang. Didn't happen until after the Powell pivot. It was the Powell pivot that was the precipitating factor that caused the multiples in that space to expand. Uh, if we go back to the same multiples that we had in 2018, you know, it's a long way down from where we are for big cap uh, technology companies. So, you know, there there are a lot of different ways that you could see this. And so, I think that it's both the stay-at-home companies and also the uh, Pandemic affected companies as well.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Ed, I'm very interested in that. That makes me think of. Uh, R- Rao's latest thinking on what he calls the exponential age because in, in his report he charts all of the fangs over the past decade and how they've posted remarkable performance and so many uh, a- investment managers especially active investment managers were saying oh my god you know the proof is not in the pudding uh this this stock is overvalued are you kidding me a 35 price to earnings rate? they they all grew into their evaluations and and you know Rao was saying if you have an exponential Trend, they don't mean revert, and obviously Raul is thinking about crypto there as well. Um, how do you think about these DEFANGs, the which are sort of on an exponential curve, and if they continue to be on that curve, they'll do well. If they if they mean revert, they'll do poorly. And then with the cyclicals, which they actually thrive when they mean revert, because then that's when the you know the value and growth, uh, the, the spread between value and growth narrows, or sometimes even crosses. Um, what do you? Yeah. Wh- what are your thoughts on uh, value, growth, the fangs, and the exponential age versus the meaner reverters?
2: Well, I would use Fang M uh, if you include Microsoft, uh, and I would make an analogy to Warren Buffett. Uh, when we think about Warren Buffett and we think about uh, under or over performance, a lot of uh, the Buffett performance is due to bigness. And Kathy Wood, you could even use her as an example in the same way. Take away the momentum trade from Kathy Wood, and you start to see that her fund is getting huge. It becomes really, really difficult. To outperform on a consistent basis when you're that big. The numbers that we're talking about in terms of those multiples, you know, 30, 40 times earnings for a company that's as big as an Apple, a Microsoft, a Google, uh, a Facebook, it's really difficult to churn out the growth necessary uh, to be able to live up to that. So we've never seen companies that are this big, that have this large a market capitalization, be able to. Uh, meet multiples of that size. So I personally am very skeptical that uh, we don't see some level of mean reversion there, because ultimately, they're just too big to, to, to continue on the same tear that they are. Um, and size matters. Uh, in this way, size matters in a negative way. Ed, it it's so
1: funny you say that. Last night I was reading uh, Peter Lynch's book. I believe it's called Beating the Street or, or Beat the Street, and he talks about how people at Magellan, especially journalists, used to say, "Oh, ma- the Magellan fund it's it's a billion dollars. It's way too big." Oh, it, now it's 5 billion dollars. It's way too big to it can't generate these returns. Oh, it's 11 billion. And he's saying, "Well, well uh, now they now they're definitely wrong because, you know, it's it's 20 billion dollars." <laughs> um so uh yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I don't, I don't really know how to wrap my head around. Definitely, I've got, I've got a lot of thinking to do. Um, Ed, my final question for you is, how are you looking at the central bank response function relative to growth and inflation? Because I just uh, read this story that uh, um, EC, uh, Lagarde said that ECB, European Central Bank, is is not discussing phase-out of crisis stimulus. It will continue to uh, purchase emergency assets, and all of its other tools are unchanged, Uh, You know, we haven't heard a lot from the Fed over the past few weeks. How have you uh, evaluated the 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 Federal Reserve's response function? Because you know, two months ago it was, oh my God, they're ripping their hair out because of inflation. Now it seems like they have a little bit less pressure on their backs. Now,
2: yeah, I mean, the way that I'm thinking about it is, on the one hand, you look at something like the Atlanta Fed GDP Now number, which is eight point something percent. tracking for Q1. Uh, and then on the other hand, you look at the Bank of Canada, which is already withdrawing accommodation, and you ask yourself, what is the likely uh, response as compared to what's happening with uh, the ECB and the Fed? And I think that uh, you know, if the economy continues to outperform expectations, irrespective of what happens with inflation and we have markets that are doing well, there's going to be a a shortening of the timetable for when we get tapering and eventually when we get rates to rise. So I think the economy is doing well enough now that the Fed, at some point in time, maybe not uh, in the summer, maybe towards the end of the year, it's hard to say, they're going to start talking about tapering asset purchases. Uh, it's just a matter of time, especially when you have markets that are ripping in the way that they have been um and there's all sorts of froth that 's building up the fed they would see no reason not to start to um, pull in their accommodation
1: and you think that they 'd stop their accommodations on the long end before they would raise rates on the short end
2: I think that the their t- the timetable. Is about it's just like with the taper tantrum and then the raising of rates, it's about uh, tapering asset purchases. And once the purchases get to zero, waiting and then moving towards interest rate hikes. Uh, And so that's a whole uh, path that they have to go down. And remember, you know, we went down that path over a multi year period, we even actually had a year stall. Before we started, we we started to raise rates. We stalled out for a whole year, and then we got back onto the rate hike train. Uh, with uh, it went from Yellen to Powell. That took you know two or three years. The Fed, uh, you know, if they took that amount of time, they wouldn't be hiking rates until something like 2024. I think that their time frame is going to be more accelerated this time than during the taper tantrum. And people might be surprised about uh, what the reaction is in the markets.
1: Okay, I'm going to reverse that question now. How high do you think the 30-year is going to have to get before the Federal Reserve will enact yield curve control? Because some people <laughs> think that it's it's like two and a half percent that the Fed is just desperate to keep it below 2.5 percent, um, and they're very convinced that yield curve control is going is going to happen. Um, yeah, tell your
2: me- your guess is as good as mine. I'm gonna have to take a big pass on that one. I have no idea any more than you you do. So unfortunately, I can't uh, I can't provide any insight there.
1: Well, yeah, um, I, I definitely do not have a crystal ball at all. I, I have I have no idea. Uh, all right, Ed, I'll close by asking the same question I asked Jared Dillion yesterday, which some people like. Some people thought it was a little too extreme, but Dogecoin, do you buy it? or do you sell it? Excuse me, do you go long it or do you go short it? You can't uh, not participate. You have to participate. You have two options, go long it, go short it. Same question I asked you about GameStop in, in very early, and you said, probably buy it. And I said, I'd too. And then it, it surged from like 80 to, to 400. So you can't do anything. Uh, you can't do nothing, excuse me, buy it, go long or go short.
2: You know, this is an interesting question because with GameStop, it was easier to say that I would go long. With Dogecoin, I think that uh, you know it is uh, the dynamics are slightly different and uh, if I have stops uh you know I can I can be stopped out I, I might be tempted to uh, to go short Dogecoin especially since it's gone from one to thirty one I know that the dollar is there but uh you know I could I, I could get stopped out I think this is a case where I would go short that's what I would do. Over going long. That's
1: what Jared said as well. It's very interesting. I, I don't know exactly what what I would do.
2: Yeah, I think it, it's the parabolic appreciation ahead of time from less than a cent to you know thirty some cents that says that a lot of the move is done. Uh, it maybe can go to a dollar, uh, but it could just as easily and probably more easily go to three cents. And so uh, that's why I think that uh, I'd probably go on the short side there.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm definitely not going to take a a position on it in in terms of uh, investing. But I'd say, you know, on Monday, the question that we asked Ed is, is is it a GameStop moment? And I think the answer is probably yes. But what that means is nowhere near as dramatic as it sounds. It means that the price is probably going to go even higher and then it's going to crash. And then everyone who was bearish it is going to be taking victory laps. And then maybe in two months, it will surge again. And then it'll just be floating around in, in you know, the 30 cents, 40 cents range. And it definitely won't like, detract from the crypto universe broadly, in the same way that GameStop didn't really detract from stocks at all. And then in four months, we'll, you know, no one, we have, we'll have no idea what, uh, what to make of it at all. We'll be just, just as confused as we are now.
2: Uh, I, I do note that I, I didn't see where it went. It, it was It's down 13% today. Uh, when you and I spoke on Monday, it was at $0.38. Cents. Now it's at $0.27. Cents. So uh, that's exactly what, what I'm talking about. Uh, it, I, I, I'd still yeah. stay with short at this point.
1: All right. Well, we'll see how this evolves. Ed, thanks so much. Uh, I know we've run a little long. Tomorrow, you'll be speaking to Ral on the REDB. That should be fun.
2: Is that uh, right? I'm speaking the Ra. I did not know that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that it. That so. Yeah. Um, so thanks so much, Ed.
2: Thank you. Yeah.
1: Talk soon.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.